Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 18 and going through the end of the chapter, verse 46. It's page that begins on page 826, 826 in your pew Bible. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority, authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For God came to you in the way of righteousness, and you do not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin our time today. Father in heaven, we ask that by your spirit's power, we would see Jesus for who he is today. Help us to see Jesus as he is in your word, not as we imagine him, not as we want him to be, but as he truly is. And Lord, as we gaze upon 
the true Jesus. Transform us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the things that, that we don't often realize about Jesus is that by his being given the title Messiah, and that's what we've been studying, by his being given the title Messiah, judge is a part of that job description. Part of the reason we overlook this aspect of Jesus is, is we often zero in on, on, on maybe one story, maybe another story from the Gospels, and then we ignore the rest of the story. So for instance, we'll take the story that is very acceptable to our culture of the woman caught in sin in John's Gospel, the one where Jesus says he was without sin, throw the first stone. And then what we do is we extrapolate that, that incident to be a summary of all that Jesus ever said and all that Jesus ever taught. Or maybe we'll, invi- we'll, we'll zero in on, on that invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. From Matthew chapter 11. And that's an extremely, extremely important and very significant aspect of who Jesus is. But that's not all of who Jesus is. I have the artwork turned off today. It's normally on. We turned it off, though, because this piece of art that is sometimes lit up behind me is one isolated interpretation from one artist of one aspect of Jesus. It captures one glimpse of who Jesus is in that one person's imagination. It shows us how that artist imagines Jesus, but that's not the whole Jesus. The whole Jesus is gentle, yes, and he's welcoming, but he's also the one of whom God says in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And it's hard to see that picture up there and think of that Jesus from Psalm 2. There is an astonishing complexity to Jesus that cannot be summarized with one tweet or one Facebook post or one bumper sticker or t-shirt or one piece of artwork or one Bible verse even. Not even with one sermon can we capture who Jesus is. And what we're going to see for the next several weeks as we work our way through all the way to Matthew chapter 25, we're going to see a side of Jesus that we don't often think about. Jesus as judge. This is a side of Jesus that we don't usually worship, as we rightly should. And the reason is because if you're like me, you find it easier to worship a God who forgives than you do a God who judges. The Jesus who judges makes us really uncomfortable. He causes us to squirm in our seats and look for the nearest exit. What, what might the Jesus who would destroy a fig tree just to make a point do to us? So this morning is, is a new beginning for many of you. We're going to open our hearts and our minds to see Jesus not just as Savior, but also as judge. And because he is Messiah, he is both. So we must, work, must worship him as both. What we're going to see in this morning's passage, and I know it's long, is that King Jesus as the judge makes a righteous indictment of the nation of Israel and Jerusalem, particularly the temple and the temple's religious leaders. And the the penalty that is pronounced by Jesus is this, Jerusalem and the temple must be destroyed. King Jesus, the judge, is fulfilling the end of an era, and he is beginning something altogether new. 
and we're, we're seeing that unfolding before us. So I've divided this, this long text into two sections for you, okay? The first is this, Jesus foreshadows the coming judgment, and we're going to see that with this fig tree parable. And secondly, he shows us why that judgment is coming. It's not just arbitrary. Jesus is righteous. He is justice. So he's going to show us why he has judged Jerusalem in this way, and we'll see that in those the second three sections of our text. Let's start with that first section. Jesus foreshadows the coming judgment. We left off last week. Jesus has had turned his back on Jerusalem and he'd walked away to Bethany. He turned his back on the chief priests and the elders and he was leaving the temple. It was very symbolic. He was leaving the temple. He was leaving the city. And in our text this morning, Matthew has Jesus returning to the city. The next day, look at verse 18. In the morning as he was returning to the city, now Jesus, remember, he first came to the city in peace. He was riding on that, that donkey that was a symbol of peace and humility. He was receiving praise from his disciples, receiving praise from children. But then he was rejected by the leaders. And now he's left and he's returning. And on his way in, we can already see the change is different. There's a change in tone. Matthew says in verse 18, Jesus is hungry. In verse 19, he sees a fig tree on the side of the road. There are leaves on the fig tree. So he goes to that tree looking for what? Well, for figs, because he's hungry. He's looking for fruit, but there's no fruit. Jesus curses the tree and it withers. Now, what is going on here? Is Jesus, is he hangry? Right? Are, are we seeing here an impulsive man who loses his sense of self-control because he's hungry and he uses his miracle-working powers to senselessly destroy this poor innocent tree? Did Jesus sin? Or is there more to the story? Well, if you know Jesus, you know that he's sinless and that everything he does is calculated from a place of wisdom, from a place of, of righteousness. And then you know that Jesus isn't impulsive. He didn't lose his self-control. He didn't sin. And so this story is not an excuse to rip off the door of the fridge because you're out of gogurt. okay? <laughs> Jesus did not sin in what he did, and you shouldn't be eating gogurt anyway. <laughs> so th this fig tree lesson, though, is another, another one of these living parables that Jesus is performing for his disciples. So kind of like the, the, the two blind men on the side of the road from back in chapter 20. Yes, you remember Jesus really healed those blind men, but they were representative of the disciples. Do you remember that? The fig tree here represents more than a fig tree. Okay? And Jesus' hunger is more than the human sensation for food. Remember how Matthew is... What he's doing here throughout his gospel, he's been, he's been relying on our understanding of the Old Testament so that we can grasp what's going on. And throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree, along with an olive tree and a grapevine, sometimes it's a vineyard, sometimes it's a garden or a field, all of these agricultural symbols throughout the Old Testament are used interchangeably to represent Israel. That's what this fig tree is. And Jesus, if you'll remember back in the Beatitudes, that, that really important first lesson that helps us read the rest of Matthew. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he's the Lord, the kingdom of heaven, and he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. So as Matthew intends us to read this story, the Lord is returning to Jerusalem hungry for the fruit of righteousness. And while he is still a ways off, Jerusalem, the fig tree, has the appearance of a fruitful tree because there's leaves on the tree. And if you know fig trees, like many of us here in Southern California do, you know that a leafy fig tree is about to bear fruit. There might even be figs already on it. And Jerusalem has the appearance of this leafy fig tree. It looks like there's fruit, fruit there. 
There is religious stuff happening there. There's a temple. There are priests. There are sacrifices happening. People are praying. Jesus sees in the distance Jerusalem, the leafy fig tree. He's expecting figs. And when he arrives at the tree and finds no fruit, he curses the tree. May no fruit ever come from you again. And it withers up and dies. We, we kind of need help reading this. But, but any Jew reading this in the first century would have picked up on the symbolism immediately. For Jesus to destroy a fig tree like this in Israel would be, as one pastor says, the equivalent of someone shooting a bald eagle in America. Jesus is foreshadowing the destruction of Jerusalem. And the reasoning for the coming destruction is her fruitlessness. There's no real righteousness there. There's only the appearance of religiosity. All leaves, no fruit. This is made even more clear about what happens next in our text. The disciples are amazed that Jesus has caused this to happen to to the fig tree in verse 20. And then look what Jesus says in verse 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, how we understand this passage all centers on how we understand that phrase, this mountain. Which mountain? What mountain? The geography here is really important, isn't it? The disciples, remember, they're walking from Bethany to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the mountain that they're looking at. This is the holy mountain, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. The disciples are walking with Jesus. They see the Temple Mount in front of them. And Jesus says, if I can destroy the fig tree, then through the power of prayer, you can have this mountain, Jerusalem, thrown into the sea. And throwing the mountain into the sea, this is not something... something It's not something we just do, okay? Because we can. Having a city on a mountain with thousands of people in it, it's a populated city, it's a populated mountain. Having that city thrown into the sea isn't a part of our everyday Christian life, is it? We don't normally curse cities. This is judgment language. In Revelation 8, When a mountain is thrown into the sea, it's a sign of judgment. In Revelation 18, when the angel throws a millstone into the sea, he says this is representative of the destruction of the city of Babylon. It's judgment. Being thrown into the sea, if you remember way back from Matthew chapter 8, that's what happened to those pigs. Jesus cast those demons into the pigs, and they went running into the sea. Judgment. So what Jesus is saying to the disciples, you need to get this. He's saying to them, you will be participants with me in the judgment of this city. And Jesus has already told his disciples this. Remember back in Matthew 19, 28, he said, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you Talking to the disciples, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we've seen that they're already going to participate in this judgment. This is a follow-up to that promise. Only here, what we see is that the disciples' role in judgment doesn't have to wait for heaven. It's already being inaugurated now with the breaking in of the heavenly kingdom. Look what Jesus says in verse 22. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The disciples, here's what's happening. The disciples are being reminded that they will have the power of prayer on their side once Jesus ascends into heaven. And they're going to need the power of prayer. Once once Jesus ascends into heaven, the church led by the apostles will be tasked 
to carry on what Jesus has begun, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And prayer will be absolutely vital to that mission. And at the same time, these, these, these disciples, they'll, they'll be suffering. They'll be suffering from the persecution that will come from the religious leaders of this very city, Jerusalem. These disciples will be the ones imprisoned by these religious leaders. They'll be beaten by them. They'll be martyred. And so it will be their prayers for vindication that bring about the judgment of Jerusalem at the hands of God. So here, for those of you who have sat in traffic on the 125 going south, and if you've just been bored and you've wondered if you have enough faith to cause Mount Miguel to be picked up and thrown into the sea, the answer is no, okay? That's not what this passage is about. This is your weekly reminder that there is context to Bible verses like whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This does not mean that if you ask for endless piles of gold or a time machine or an invisibility cloak, that God will give it to you, okay? Matthew's gospel was written to show us that Jesus is the Christ and that God's will is going to be done and his kingdom is being established regardless of the opposition. The Bible is not... It is not a collection of magical incantations that are there to give us what we want. What Jesus is showing us here, the point of this passage, is that God's judgment is looming over Jerusalem and Jesus is the bringer of that judgment. And the disciples will play a part. Now there are passages that that tell us that God answers our prayers. This is one of them. But there's lots of passages that tell us that God answers our prayers. So think back to the Sermon on the Mount. We're told that that God answers our prayers for provision. But the point was, because he's our father, he cares for us, and and he provides for us. The point is that the father provides. It's a God glorifying answer to prayer. In James, we're told the answer that God answers our prayers for wisdom. But that wisdom is given to us in times of trial and persecution. When we're suffering for the name of Christ, it's Christ-glorifying answer to prayer. In 1 John, when, when John tells us when we pray according to God's will, he answers our prayers. But those prayers are to be drawn from our understanding of God's will, not our will. And so here in Matthew, same thing. Much like what we see David praying in the Psalms. Have you read some of David's prayers in the Psalms? Again and again, David is praying that God's judgment would be brought on his enemies. And Jesus is here saying, God's judgment will be brought on my enemies. And he's encouraging his disciples to pray those prayers. So listen, prayer then, even the prayers that benefit us in the long run, are to be God-glorifying. We're constantly praying for his will. We're constantly praying for his glory, for his kingdom. This book is not about you. It's not about the magic inside of you book is about Jesus and his kingdom and how he's glorified in us. So, so here's the question. Is it right to pray for God's justice? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. God answers prayers for his justice. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. When the day comes for God to judge Jerusalem for her opposition to Christ's kingdom, the disciples are told to pray for God's justice. So church, it is right and it is good to pray for God's justice. That is a faithful prayer. Now the bigger question here 
that Matthew wants to address for us is this. Is Jesus righteous to bring judgment on Jerusalem? That's what's coming. Is Jesus right in bringing this? And Matthew's argument is, yes, he is. And and with these next three sections that we'll see in our text, he shows us Jesus is righteous in this. Let's take these one section at a time. The first is this confrontation of Jesus that that the Jewish leaders have when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. So Matthew says in verse 23, he enters the temple. That's very prophetic. The Lord returns to the temple, first time in peace, this time in judgment. He enters the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he's teaching, and they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, this is a legitimate question, okay? They're right to ask this question. The chief priests and the elders are the authorities in the temple. That's their job. And they certainly know that they didn't give Jesus the authority to do what he's doing in the temple. It's supposed to come through them. There's a way things are done, and what he's doing isn't it. So there there is a legitimate aspect to the question, but at the same time, it's obvious to any of us that this is a trap, isn't it? They're trying to trick him. Because he's been quoting scripture, and they know what this scripture, all the scripture that he's been quoting is referring to. He's been implying that he has divine authority, and what they want to do is hear him say it. They want to hear Jesus say, I have been given this authority from God, because when he says that, they can condemn him. Jesus sees the trap, doesn't he? And he avoids it by asking a question with another question. Jesus' question, what it does is it reveals the wickedness in their hearts. With his question and their answer, Jesus shows us their guilt. And their guilt is an indictment against them. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, I will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now he's talking about John the Baptist. And if you'll remember from way back in chapter 3, when John the Baptist came onto the scene with his ministry and he's prophesying and he's calling people to repentance and he's baptizing for the repentance of sin. He's he's announcing the coming kingdom. Well, his fame had spread all throughout the country. Matthew tells us it went from Jerusalem to Judea and all throughout the region of the Jordan. Everybody knew who John the Baptist was. And his ministry was popular. The people liked him. So in response to Jesus' question, look what the chief priests and elders do. Verse 25, kind of stuck here. They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say John's baptism is from heaven, then he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? And the point there is, is if you believe John, then you would believe that I'm the Messiah. But, but if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So the answer, Jesus, we do not know. I want you to pay careful attention to what's just happened here. These are the chief priests and the elders. These are the theological and the moral leaders of the nation. This is the equivalent of all the presidents and all the professors from all of the evangelical seminaries in our nation and in our denomination, along with all of the senior pastors of all of the biggest churches. So take the people who have written the most books about the Bible, the most popular teachers, the most well-known teachers. And Jesus asked them a very basic theological question, where's John's baptisms from? In other words, he's asking, was John the prophet, was John the Baptist a prophet of God or not? They should have no problem answering this. It's a yes or no question. And at the very least, if they were even remotely faithful in their calling, they would at least open up their Bibles. They would consider the scriptures in searching for their answer. They can also, if they 
They could examine John's ministry. They could, they could ask questions like, was, was John's preaching consistent with Scripture? Were his prophecies fulfilled? This is the question that everyone in the nation has been asking about. It's a profoundly theological question, and the teachers of the word should have the answer. Or at least be willing to search for the answer. That's their job. Okay? But the way that they answer the question reveals that the truth is of zero importance to them. Their primary concern is not whether or not the word of God was preached by John. Their concern is not whether or not people have repented and turned to the Lord as a result of John's ministry. Their, their concern is not whether or not the kingdom has actually come, as John has been saying. Their primary concern, their only concern, is what people think of them. They're cowards. They're people pleasers. The very men who should be leading the people of God in repentance and worship are no different than Herod. You remember Herod? Back in chapter 14 of Matthew, Matthew tells us that Herod, the ruler of the northern territories, he wanted to have John the Baptist put to death, but he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. See the similarities? Herod feared the people. These religious leaders fear the people. So Jesus, in asking this really simple question to Israel's leaders, he has revealed their true hearts. They're just like Herod, the wicked ruler. They fear the people, but they do not fear God. Friends, if you're more concerned about what people think of you than you are concerned about what honors God, then your heart is in the same place as these men, the same place as Herod. A heart that fears man more than God is not a heart that is set on serving Christ. And if that's you, if you know that, that the primary concern in your life is how other people see you, what other people think of you, no matter who it is, whether it's your spouse or your family or your friends, your neighbor, your coworkers. And honestly, in many ways, that's all most of us, isn't it? We often think this way. We all have this sin dwelling in us. If that's you, just do this. Acknowledge that this is sin. Stop making excuses. And confess it. Lord, I confess I have made people big. I have made you very small. Forgive me and change me. It's that easy of a prayer. And then repent and cling a hold of the forgiveness you have in Jesus Christ. And seek Christ. Dwell on Jesus Christ. Dwell on him in his word. And what will happen is you will grow in your all of Christ and what other people think of you will become less and less and less important. It's not complicated, but it's harder than it sounds, isn't it? For those of you who have, have gone through these steps again and again and again and again. But listen, fearing what other people think of you is a big, bright, major indicator that you are still way too close to the center of your own life. Let your life be about glorifying Christ. And all of these thoughts and all these anxieties about you will slowly but surely become less important. I promise they will. They'll become less central to your thinking. And you'll start to become less like these men who hate Jesus and more like Jesus. Well, the big point here, though, in this section, is that Jesus has revealed to us what's in the hearts of these men. They don't fear the Lord. Strike one. Judgment is coming. In the second passage, the parable of the two sons, 
we find that their religious leaders are not repentant. So Jesus tells a parable in order to, to reveal this truth to them. He says, a man has two sons. Man sends the first son out into the vineyard. And remember, the vineyard is representative of Israel. Remember fig trees, olive trees, grapevines, vineyards. All of these are Old Testament symbols of Israel. This is important in these next several chapters. Well, the father sends the first son out to do the work in the vineyard. He says, no, I'm not going to go. But then what happens? Look at verse 29. He changes his mind. That's another word for repentance. He felt remorseful for disobeying the father. And he went out and he did the work that the father had called him to. The second son, though, says, yes, I'll go. But he doesn't, does he? And Jesus asks this simple question. It's an easy parable. So easy, even the Pharisees can get it. Jesus asks that question, which son did the will of the father? And the answer is obvious. The first son was obedient. The second son was not. And now look at Jesus' application. Well then, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are the first son. They were living in disobedience. But when John the Baptist, the prophet, came around in the way of righteousness and called for repentance because of the nearness of the kingdom, they believed him. They listened to him. They repented. And they began to live in obedience to the Father. They did the work in the vineyard. But the religious leaders didn't. They did not believe John the Baptist, and they didn't, look at verse 32, they didn't change their minds as time went on. Here we are, maybe four or five years later. They didn't change their minds. They didn't repent. Still obstinately, obstinately opposing the Lord's will. Jesus says they are like the second son. They had the appearance of obedience, to go back to our first parable. They had the appearance of obedience. It looked like they were going to obey. They had leaves on that fig tree, but there's no fruit. They are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. There's no righteousness in them. There's no holiness in them. It's a facade. So we have to ask the same question. Friends, Christians, non-Christians, do you have the appearance of obedience but your heart is far from God? When the world looks at you, when your neighbors look at you, do they see what looks like a leafy tree? One who is acting like she is or he is obeying the Lord. You appear religious. Your neighbors know you go to church. You're here. But when the Holy Spirit looks, there's no fruit. There's no repentance. Is that you? Let me ask it this way. When was the last time you confessed sin? When was the last time you repented? That's what the Lord is looking for. Fruit in keeping with repentance. If you have been born again into Christ's kingdom, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is repentance. Repentance and faith are the heartbeat of the Christian life. We can't grow in Christ's likeness if we insist that there's nothing wrong with us to begin with, can we? Because then, by definition, we don't think we need to grow. Those who are truly in Christ are constantly living a, a life of repentance of sin, faith, and growth in Christ's likeness. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Identify, Christians, identify with the former tax collectors. Identify with the former prostitutes that Jesus is talking about here. Take their example. They heard the voice of the prophet who was preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. And they repented. They turned from their sin and identified with the coming king. 
And they received him as king when he arrived. And also learn from the negative example. The negative example of these chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees. They heard the same warnings. They heard of the coming of the kingdom, but they did not listen. And for their unbelief and their unrepentance, Jesus is showing us judgment is coming. And their judgment is justified. In, in both of these, these first two sections, we have seen this return of John the Baptist talk. As Dustin and I were, were talking about this passage this week, he asked, why is John the Baptist suddenly coming up again? It was a good question, right? and we had to look into it. Um, but if you'll remember, John the Baptist, according to the prophets, was the forerunner to Christ. He was the one who was to warn Israel and prepare them for the coming judgment. In Malachi chapter 3, the forerunner comes before the Christ, and then the Christ comes and he purifies the sons of Levi. He, clean, he cleans them with soap. He refines them with fire. In Malachi 4, the Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And remember, that's John the Baptist. Jesus told us so. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will Turn the hearts of fathers to their children. That's a repentance language. And the hearts of children to their fathers. And then look at this conditional. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's what's being fulfilled here. John the Baptist has come. He's called for repentance. And those who do not repent will receive the decree of utter destruction. Judgment is coming at the verdict of Messiah, King Jesus. Well, this brings us to the third indictment against Jerusalem in our text this morning, our last one. We see this third indictment in the parable of the tenants. See, this starts in verse 33. If you've still got your Bibles open. Matthew says, quoting Jesus, Master of a house plants a vineyard. There it is again. That's a representation of Israel, God's kingdom. This time the vineyard has a fence around it. This is, this is a unique description. And it's got a wine press. And it's got a tower. Now immediately, Jesus' hearers would be thinking, oh, that sounds like Isaiah chapter 5. Because they know their Bibles. They know their Bibles. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. There's the vineyard. My, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. There's the tower. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. There's the press. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Fruit, right? He's looking for fruit. But it yielded wild grapes. Jesus is taking that very, very familiar passage or especially these Bible teachers. And that passage, they would know, ends in judgment. And he's going to take that little bit of the passage and use that to set the stage for his parable. Okay? So we can probably see where this is going. And, and that knowing Isaiah 5, the chief priests and the Pharisees hearing this, they would have picked up that he was speaking about them, which is what Matthew tells us. Well, the master leaves tenants in charge of the vineyard, and in verse 34, the time for fruit comes, right? So a few years have passed. It's time for the, the master to come get his fruit, again, looking for fruit, looking for his harvest. God is looking for fruitfulness from his people. Well, he sends servants for the harvest, and they're killed. He sends more servants, and they're killed. And then he sends his son, and they kill his son. And then Jesus allows these men to answer that crucial question. He sets them up. What should the master do to those tenants? And what do they say? Look at verse 41. He will put those miserable wretches to death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Well, that alone should be enough. Because these are the very men 
who will reject the Son. They have just confessed publicly. They understand what the penalty for rejecting the Son is. They understand the law. So ignorance will be of no it won't be an excuse for them. Jesus could have just said now at this point, and so it will be for you, and walked away. And that would have been enough. Because they have tied their own nooses. But Jesus doesn't do that. He takes this a step further. He's got more teaching to do. Look at his response to them in verse 42. He says what he says to them back in the temple cleansing. Have you never heard the scriptures? Remember, these guys are teachers of the scriptures. So he's really putting this in their face. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is Psalm 118 again. Psalm 118 is the psalm that the disciples were singing when Jesus came into Jerusalem a couple days ago on, on Palm Sunday. Remember, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. Really important psalm in the coming of Christ into Jerusalem because he's referring to it again. Because he's now quoting a different part of the psalm. And this part of the psalm was pretty well understood, especially by these, by these teachers, to be referring to Israel. Israel is the cornerstone. All of the nations surrounding Israel, God's eternal kingdom, had rejected Israel. And God was building his kingdom through Israel. So Jesus takes this psalm. He says, that's me. This is scandalous, guys. That's me. The son that the vineyard tenants killed is the stone that the builders rejected. And just as God's kingdom was built through Israel, as its cornerstone in Psalm 118, Jesus is saying God's kingdom is going to really be built in Christ, the true cornerstone. The Son will become the cornerstone. And so on the basis of that truth, we get verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, those of you who are calling yourself Israel, though you're not true Israel, will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So the kingdom of God, which was Israel, and all that came with it, including the temple and the law and the priestly order, all of that, the kingdom is being taken from the Pharisees and the priests and the elders and the scribes. All of those religious leaders, it's being taken from them and is being built upon Christ, the one that they've rejected. the fulfillment of all who Israel was supposed to be, righteous and obedient, glorifying to God. And now the people who are in Christ are those who will receive the kingdom, the vineyard. These people will be the ones who produce the fruit that God's been looking for. What's going to happen to the tenants, though? What about those guys who killed the son? What happens to them? The priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, all these people who hate Jesus. Look at verse 44. The one who falls on this stone. Which stone? The cornerstone. Jesus. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when the stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. There it is again. The fruitless fig tree is cursed, is crushed by Jesus. They'll be broken to pieces, crushed by the one they rejected because they rejected him. Over and over again, Jesus is revealing to us, these religious leaders are about to receive a just judgment, a righteous judgment. They don't fear God. They aren't bearing the fruit of repentance. They didn't heed the word of God and John the Baptist's message, 
and they've rejected the Son. And because of all of these things, judgment is coming. And they hear that message loud and clear. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. Good job, guys. And in verse 46, rather than repenting, because you, you would think, oh, all of this evidence against me. I should repent. But rather than repenting, they doubled down. They sought all the more to silence Jesus. Well, judgment came. Judgment comes to Jerusalem in 70 A.D., 37 years from this point. The the entire city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. And we're going to see this over and over again in coming chapters. But I want you to see this here. Jesus was righteous in his judgment against Jerusalem. They did not fear the Lord. They had no heart of repentance. And they, most of all, worst of all, they rejected the Son. And I want you to know this. God's righteous judgment comes to all who follow in the unbelief of the men of of this city. All who don't fear the Lord, all who never repent, and all who reject Messiah. Judgment is coming. To rightly fear the Lord, on the other side, to rightly fear the Lord is to repent. It is to receive the Son. It is to receive Christ as King. This is the will of God. This is what it means to honor God. This is what it means to be fruitful in Him. And this morning, if you're in earshot of this message, whether you're online or you're here in our presence, this is God's call to you. Hear the word of the Lord. Know that Christ has been given, he has, he has given his life to redeem you and to graft you in to this fruit-bearing tree. Receive him as king. Abide in him and bear the fruit of his righteousness. Christ has been given to the church for this very purpose. Purpose. 